Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. So are these your notes? These... <laughs> these are your notes about what we're going to say. Uh, anything is a short answer. <laughs> so how many novels did you not finish? Oh my Probably. God, so many. <laughs> it was perfect. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. <laughs> this is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. You better hear first. We're going <laughs> to... Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. As always, I'm Jamie and today I have the great honour of being joined by GQ columnist, author, That Blind Date blogger, the guy liner himself, Justin Myers. Hi Justin, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. You've got a great list of titles there. I was thinking it was very Game of Thrones. Yeah, I don't have a Wikipedia page, thankfully, but if I did, it would be very interesting. I'll get right on that. Oh God, no. The last thing I want. (laughs) Let's kick off with your latest news, the release of your third novel, The Fake Up. For me and everyone listening, uh, what's it all about? So it is a rom-com on the surface of it. I've never written a straight up rom-com before, although my first two books were kind of, I don't, you know kind of sold maybe as a, as a, as romantic comedies. I don't actually yeah. think that they were this, this definitely is. And it's about a couple called Dylan and Flo who've been going out for a few years. And they're one of those couples who all their friends think that they're in a toxic relationship. They're perfectly happy being with each other, but their friends think it's a toxic relationship and external pressures force them to begin arguing. And so they break up um but they miss each other and they end up getting back together but the the twist is that Flo is an aspiring singer-songwriter which well, is a singer-songwriter she kind of like has a YouTube channel but she's fairly low key and Dylan is an aspiring actor just doing kind of you know his, at the beginning of the book his job is one of those amazing tour guides who have to dress up and show people around haunted bits of London oh cool but obviously he wants to be you know Olivier or whatever yeah and their careers take off just as they're getting back together. And so they find that they have to pretend to be broken up for the sake of their careers. Uh, perfect rom-com. And setup. hilarity ensues. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it sounds great. I'm really excited for it to come out and uh, to get my hands on it. It's, it's really interesting seeing the evolution of your books. Uh, mm. and, and by that, I mean, like, um, so your first book, uh, the last Romeo, which came out 2018. Is that That's right? That's right. Yeah. That was first person past and very much through the lens of a, a blog, something which you have some experience with. Yeah. What was, what was the catalyst for you sort of deciding to write your first novel? Well, I had toyed with the idea of writing a novel for years. I mean, I've, I've written you know, for a long time, even before I really knew I wanted to be a writer, I would write in, you know, when you have, you get a book and it has the, when you're a child and it has the the blank bits, obviously when you open the cover, it just has blank bits before you get to the actual pages. I would write stories in them. 
<laughs> so there was always a need to be in books in one way or another. And I, I just, I don't think I really, if I'm very honest, I don't think I had the confidence to write a book myself or the time or the money mm. um, because it does take up a lot of your time and time really is money, isn't it? Yeah. So I was asked, uh, a guy called Dom at Little Brown emailed me one day and said, have you ever thought about writing a novel? And I was like, have I? <laughs> um, and he just said he thought the time was right for a, a commercial gay novel and he would just love to see if I had any ideas. And I did. I, I think, I think the, you know, the first novel is always going to be, unless you have a really great idea that you've harbored for years, then I think mm -hmm. your first novel is always going to be semi-autobiographical. You know, write what you know is a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. Yeah. And I came up with the idea of The Last Romeo, which I didn't want to be too autobiographical. In fact, in retrospect, I wish I'd made it <laughs> much less autobiographical. Um, I came up with the idea and sent it to him and he said, sounds good. Can you do me a chapter and uh, a few scenes from later in the book? And I did them and I got a book deal and I still can't believe it because it doesn't happen that way. Obviously, you know, yeah. you have to write a full manuscript and I know, you know, I know how it works. And so I, mm. I still can't believe that that's what happened, but that is what happened. Uh, and then I had to go and write the thing. <laughs> and how was it writing it? Um, Great. I'm trying to remember now whether I was less or more terrified than I <laughs> was writing the ones that came after. I think a bit less terrified. I just had, I didn't know what I was doing. And to a degree, I still don't. And I just went with it. And um, it was, it was, I, you know, I, I've, I've said this before to friends, but once I got away from the autobiographical bits, it was much more fun to write. Mm. The first half is quite you know, close-ish to what actually happened to me um, with a few embellishments to make it more interesting and, you know, make characters more charactery than actual people. Sure. Um, I had to invent an, an, uh, you know, a horrible ex because my ex-boyfriend was actually very nice. Um, <laughs> Damn him. Yes. <laughs> and um, But once it went off into fantasy, once, it, once my imagination was allowed to run wild, if you like, it was much more fun. I think when you're writing something that is based a little bit on your own life, you feel a responsibility to your history and to the events that happened to you. And you wonder, you know, this was a big moment for me. Should it be in the book? Because it was a big moment. Or yeah. should it be in the book? Because it's actually good enough to be in a book. So it was quite, could be quite brutal at times editing pivotal moments of my life because they didn't make good fiction. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. But once I could just, once I went a bit bonkers in the second half, it was perfectly <laughs> fine. So is that why... Yeah, with your your second book, uh, which is the Magnificent Sons, and then also um, the the Fake Up, is that why you sort of moved away from that kind of area a bit? You 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 even changed its third person, uh, Magnificent Sons, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I wanted different um, perspectives in Magnificent Sons because it has two main characters really i mean it has one main character jake who is a guy who's on the cusp of coming out as bisexual quite mm -hmm. late in life he's 29 at the beginning of the book and um his younger brother trick who is gay and is 17 and comes out in the very first chapter and he's like an all singing all dancing all voguing uh yeah. young gay man who's very who, on the surface of it seems to be very confident and comfortable in his own skin and has an amazing array of supportive friends, which his elder brother Jake doesn't have. And they are kind of 
enemies that they don't really know why. And I really wanted to get into the heads of both of them and talk about what it means to be gay or bi or trans or um, queer generally, I suppose, from, mm. from different perspectives. Because the thing about the LGBTQ plus community is that we are, you know, we have that umbrella over us, but we are packed full of individuals with very different backstories. And even the one experience that unifies us all coming out is extremely different for everybody even if you are in the same family, which is what I want to show. And I yeah. couldn't really, I think if I'm honest, I was a bit scared of writing in first person from more than one person. Yeah. It scared me a bit. So I thought with third person, if I have a bit of distance there, then maybe it will be easier. It turns out yeah. I was wrong. It wasn't really that much easier, but it, <laughs> but it, but it was at least, uh, it was fun. It was definitely fun. And yeah. um, the fake up is the same. That's third person, but two, two points of view. Right. Okay. 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 So dialing it back a bit, um, as you mentioned, you, you've been writing forever, not necessarily novels, but you've stretched your writing muscles across many different uh, styles, genres. You've worked with um, The Guardian, BuzzFeed, Irish Times, of course, GQ, who you, who you are a, communist, a, co- a columnist for hmm. currently. Um, and you said you've, you've always wanted to be a writer. How did uh, how did your kind of career reach the point where you became a columnist for, I can't say columnist today, uh, for GQ? It's funny you should say columnist because there's a really prominent radio presenter who says it like that. And I was once oh. on their show <laughs> and they said, GQ columnist. And I was like, is that, is that how you actually say it? <laughs> I, it was, I'd never heard it before, but okay, if you're saying it too, maybe it is. <laughs> oh, no. maybe, maybe we should introduce it. Anyway, um, how, how did I get to that point? <laughs> Um, mainly through ignoring what was staring me right in the face for a very, very long time. (laughs) I did, uh, I was good at English and stuff at school, that old cliche. And Mm. I was great at languages and languages, if I'm very honest, felt like they could take me further away from my hometown than English could. So I pursued that. I did French at university because I was good at it, which probably wasn't a good idea. I, I toyed with the idea of doing journalism, but I'm from a working class background and I didn't have any connections or know anybody. And I applied to do work experience when I was about 14 at the local paper, but somebody else got the placement oh. who, who was related to someone who worked there. Shocking. Okay, yeah. My first taste of nepotism. <laughs> and I had to go work in a travel agent, you know, French. So it, it was a long road of me not really knowing what I wanted to do, but having a feeling that I really did want to write. And when I was 24... Uh, so 22 years ago, I saw, uh, an advert online, you know, we're looking for writers. It won't be paid, but it will be fun. And, you know, they always say you shouldn't work for free, but this is the very early days of the internet Mm. when it was still kind of the wild west and no one was really getting paid for anything. And I sent in a couple of examples and they really loved it. And I thought, well, maybe I can do it then. And, you know, a couple of years later, I moved to London exclusively. I lived in Edinburgh at the time and I moved to London to try and be a writer. And it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, I got a job with a a digital agency, uh, writing corporate stuff and writing stuff for teenagers. Um, I did little freelance bits here and there. But really what what really took off was... um, and funnily enough, it's the epigraph of my first book, The Last Romeo. I don't know if you've seen The Dark Knight Rises, I have. where Tom Hardy as Bane says, no one cared who I was until I put on the mask. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the epigraph of The Last Romeo because it was. I 
I broke up with my boyfriend and began an anonymous blog, The Guyliner, um, to write about going on dates with men in a way that I thought probably hadn't been done before. Um, and it took off and people took notice and, you know, really liked my writing. And it, it literally did snowball from there where I started getting writing gigs in the nationals and in magazines. And I had a, a pretty successful career before I was the guy liner, but not one that anyone knew about. I worked in TV for a bit and like I worked at the digital agency and that kind of thing and had a few freelance jobs and had been published and stuff, but it was a whole new ball game when, when the guy liner came into my life. Wow. Mm. That's a really cool story. I also love the idea that Bane's like supervillain Tom Hardy inspired your dating blog. And I haven't seen the film. <laughs> I haven't. I, it was a meme. I saw it on a meme. <laughs> I'm so online. It's ridiculous. I saw it in a meme. And I thought that's brilliant. That's so true. It was, it was just honestly my entire career in a nutshell. Nobody gave two hoots yeah. about my right. You know, when I say two hoots. The wide, the wider public, I suppose. Nobody mm. out there really knew anything about me until I decided to hide my identity. Yeah, works perfectly. It did. <laughs> and so, so, off the back of the very successful blog, um, and then and then you started working with the Guardian on a similar thing, or was that the same thing? So, what happened with the Guardian was I, I became advice columnist at Gay Times, uh, right about twenty eleven, twenty twelve, I think. And, um, with the, with writing about dates and dating and having a, an advice, a dating column in gay times, then it turned into an advice column. I kind of, I suppose I built up this, um, idea around me that I was somehow an expert in dating, <laughs> just doing something a lot doesn't necessarily make you an expert in it. But then after a few years, I, I met someone. And so I, I did write about retrospective, you know, dates, but I, I was running out of material and I really enjoyed the Guardian's blind date column, which has been running uh, for about 12 years, I think now in their, first of all, in their weekend magazine and now in, in their Saturday supplement. Um, and basically for anyone who doesn't know, they send just random people right in wanting to go on this blind date. They send them out for a free meal at a restaurant and wait for sparks to fly or dump squibs to get damper or whatever. <laughs> and they, they're always asked the same questions, which is a, a wonderful format really, because you find yourself expecting, you know, certain answers. And, and these answers are very easy to analyze. You can, you can work out a lot about a person from how they answer these stock questions. Mm. And I, I used to talk about it on Twitter, uh, you know, every Saturday when it would go up, um, I'd, you know, pull out a few highlights and tweet about them and talk to other people. And I thought there's something here, you know, I, I got a lot of attention for it and I, I was still anonymous at this point and I, I don't love attention, but I like it when people read my writing. So it's quite a weird world to live in. And I just started doing a short, really short at first, pricey of what had happened in the day and picked out a couple of answers and kind of ever so gently tore them to shreds. <laughs> just like with the, with the, you know, just the tiniest, but quite sharp fangs. And, um, <laughs> became even more successful, I think, than my dating had been. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's peak. It was, it was just ridiculous how many um, views it was getting. My site would crash all the time. And 
it became a, a Saturday morning ritual and people really, really enjoyed it. And it did lead to me actually writing for The Guardian, you know, uh, eventually. When they noticed it, it was happening. It became a it became a thing. You know, they had me in and for a meeting and I was still anonymous at the time. And um, yeah, it just became, I think that's what most people, because the dating is so long ago now, but I think most people know me for that now. And I still do it. Um not at the moment because I'm, I'm writing my fourth book, but um, mm-hmm. I still do um, do it every so often uh, when I yeah. can. I, re- I still really enjoy it and people still love it. So why not? <laughs> it is fun. It is. You, uh, there's a certain quality to the way that you eviscerate things very delicately. That's, that's very enjoyable to read. <laughs> yeah, the thing about it is that it's, it's actually very rarely about the datas themselves. Yeah. It is about me and the people reading the column. So we talk about, you know, dating tropes and rituals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talk about my own experiences and, and, ha- and, and society as a whole. It, it, is, it is very rarely about the things that the daters actually say and never about things like what they look like or occasionally yeah. I will mock what they're wearing, you know, <laughs> but very rarely. Sometimes yeah, you just have to. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. <laughs> I remember one, one woman years ago in her photo, she was... Uh, wearing a, a a bright jumper and carrying a hedgehog, a hedgehog, yeah, a, 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 a live one. No, no, <laughs> thank God it was alive. An, an actual hedgehog. <laughs> so, you know, but sometimes it's unavoidable. Yeah. But really, it is about the world in general, seen through this lens of the weird things people do when they go on a date and how they react and what they say after. Yeah, and um, yeah, I'm I'm quite proud of quite a lot of it. Some of my best writing is in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's great. And it's amazing how that sort of one thing that you were doing as a bit of a hobby, bit of fun, has sort of opened up so many different avenues for you and, and, and brought, brought your career so far from there. Yeah, because when you write for a living, as I have been doing now for, you know, two decades, hmm. and but because writing for a lot of people is a hobby, like you say, or a side hustle, as some people say, or whatever. And when it becomes your main job, as it has been for a long time now, you think that you can never find a way to make it, you know, a leisure experience again, which is what the blog turned out to be. It was, I I mean, I started the Guyliner itself back in 2010 because the writing I was doing like for corporate clients and stuff just was not grabbing me. It was work, you know, to earn money and and pay rent on the, the flat I just got for myself. So I wasn't really... You know, like you were saying, the, the, the muscle was, wasn't being um, stretched in the way I wanted it to be. You know, it was yeah. kind of all very surface level, keeping me going, but it wasn't, I wasn't really actively enjoying it and having the freedom to write what I wanted. And that's the great thing about having a blog really is I can, it's my world, it's my tone of voice, it's my, not even my opinions really, it's just my, it all belongs to me. And I can write whatever I like there, yeah. um, you know, within reason. <laughs> well, I've heard the same, a similar story with um, lots of authors who have not necessarily been working on the corporate side of things, uh, but they have written a lot of books and a lot of books they've submitted and been rejected. And then the book that finally breaks through is when they say, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop looking at the market. I'm going to stop looking at what's trending or what's popular. I'm just going to write the thing that I want to write set mm. where I want to set it with the characters I want to write. And that often is just the one that shines through. Yeah, I can imagine. I I'm, I don't have any of those, um, or well, yet touch wood. <laughs> I don't have any of those, you know, un 
loved manuscripts in a drawer. I don't really have anything in a drawer. All of my work is pretty much out there. I have That's great. You know, early sketches for novels that will probably come one day. But yeah, I can imagine that I think that there is a release really from just going with it. I think it really helps you to find your own tone as well. And that's probably one of the things that I found tricky about pivoting toward fiction or, you know, writing novels is that it's, it's not always you. And I think that my, my tone on my, on my website is quite, you know, it's inescapably me. It's very me. And, uh, in the first book that was kind of all right. Although I, I made him an unlikable character to some degree, I think to get away from me a bit, not that I'm a particularly likable person, but (laughs) I, I, you know, I went to a bit of an extreme with him. Um, so, but it really helps you, uh, find your own tone and that, that, yeah, like I say, that was what was tricky. Um, trying to find, put yourself in the, in the mind of a character and, um, remember that, you know, it's, it's not, you're not writing your manifesto. You are, you are writing (laughs) a a piece of art, if you like, that is meant to entertain. Yes, exactly. Always remember that your writing is supposed to be interesting and entertaining. Yes. Um, am I right in thinking, changing topic a little bit here, Mm. that you had a hand in the TV adaptation of This Is Going To Hurt? Yeah. That was a great show. How how did you end up being involved with that? Um I am friends with Adam Kay. Wow, name drop. Uh I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh we met on Twitter as, uh-huh. as as so many uh good friends do now, which is one of yeah. the yeah. plus points of Twitter that I think people forget. Mm-hmm. Met in real life a few years ago and have done a few bits together and he just um asked if I wanted to kind of add my, uh, what would you call it? I don't want to say expertise because obviously <laughs> he, he is literally an expert and a, and, uh, a genius, yeah. but, um, he's quite a collaborative person. And so he just wanted to know, uh, if I was interested in, uh, being involved and obviously I was, I mean, this yeah. is years, this is years ago now, obviously, because, um, it takes a long time to get things on TV. Mm-hmm. So what, what did that entail? What did you- You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You do. So I was script consultant. Mm-hmm. And basically, in a nutshell, that means that Adam sends you the brilliant stuff he's already done. Mm. And you read it. And you say, oh, what about this joke here? Or what about doing this this way? And he either takes on board your suggestions or he doesn't. Okay. Okay. So it's sort of, it's sort of like um, a critique. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit like, you know, kind of workshopping it in the very early stages and looking at how a scene might play out okay. and, uh, you know, suggest lines. And obviously it's, it's all on Adam. He's just done so well with it. It's, you know, it's such a brilliant adaptation and just so clever the way he um you know and that is the real chance because that was his story yeah and the way he's done it in such a way that fictionalizing it obviously to make it feel very much still like he 
owns that story and lived that life mm-hmm. and yet creating a character that could be so many doctors and the situations they've been in um but yeah in short it was basically just like you know suggesting jokes that kind of stuff okay yeah yeah all that good stuff was that the first time you've worked on anything like that on sort of screenwriting and stuff um actually speaking of things in a drawer i did write a script for somebody <laughs> years ago years ago and it never came to anything but we didn't do anything with it but okay. um that was my first time with the big boys yeah oh i see and and would you like to do more yeah i think so it was something i, I really liked i think i have um i definitely have a an aptitude maybe for dialogue there's definitely mm-hmm. a, something in me that likes putting dialogue together and scenes when i'm writing a book actually i'm very much imagining it like it's a movie playing in my head mm-hmm. anyway so i kind of write with that and sometimes i can get a bit hung up on over narrating everything you know what's going on and every look and every muscle twitch which i'm trying to train myself out of <laughs> um so i've definitely got a, a screenwritery head i think well great when they make all of the movies of your books, you can be at the helm for each of them. <laughs> God, no, I want them to do well. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be involved. I, I, no, I've, I've heard that before because I've spoken to authors whose the, the rights have been sold for their, for their films. And, and some people love to be front and center. They're like, yeah, I want to be all over this. And other people are just, let, please let someone else do it. Because like, I don't know if I can go back and... I don't know if I can deal with making the changes that need to be made. So I'm just going to let someone else take that. Yeah, I think it's not necessarily that for me. I think for The Last Romeo, I'm just too close to the subject. Mm, And I feel like I spent a lot of time writing that story, you know, either with my own dating blog, you know, and then then doing the manuscript itself, whatever. Yeah. I'm a bit too close for it. Well, I'm sure you can't say much about it, but you do have a fourth book in the works. How are you feeling at the moment writing that? Um, I am enjoying it. That's I've, said it. That, I've said that as if I don't usually. <laughs> um, it is, it's my first, um, I hadn't written fiction for two years because I finished the fake up just before the pandemic hit. Okay. The first draft, I finished that January, 2020. Right. And hadn't touched, apart from edits to the fake up, I hadn't touched fiction. And so I started writing this one. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Why is it? This is ridiculous. What? All these, this fictional person, thoughts, dreams. It was, oh, it was a bit tough at first. But yeah, I'm, I'm uh, 60,000 words in. Okay, nice. And I'm aiming to end on 80. I want, I want a, a brisk novel this time. The fake okay. is quite long. And it's first person as well, which is ah. a return to first person after three two books without it so um tough okay okay it's not tough really i'm just saying that to, <laughs> to make my job sound harder so you're kind of mixing things up but also kind of going back to a more familiar rhythm with the style i think i considered what to do and I, whether it should be in first or third person and i thought i really want to stay with this character all the time mm. um for better or worse and i think it would really benefit from i mean you can still do like you know inner monologues and stuff in third person you just write yeah. it in third person but I, I really wanted to inhabit this character and all his spoiler uh 
insecurities and idiosyncrasies. So I have gone back to first person. I, I actually halfway through, I forgot and wrote like half a chapter in third person. <laughs> so, oh, oh no, hang on. <laughs> you read it back and you're really confused. What happened here? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Or something? Yeah, bizarre. Well, looking forward to uh, to seeing what that's like. Um, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. Come on. <laughs> first draft, though. I mean, it's just yeah, first it's, draft. It's just so weird. The vomit draft. Are you, are yeah. you, do you do you agree with the vomit draft approach? I've never heard that before. Oh, really? <laughs> I like that um, yeah. a little bit. I, I have been told by my agent and by my editors that my first draft doesn't look like most people's first draft, and that they are oh. very polished. Um, um so i do try to make them as uh shelf ready I, I think it was adam actually that told me once you know don't don't hand anything over you know don't say it's the final draft unless you would be happy to see it on the shelf at waterstones mm-hmm. and um he's right so i try and make it i mean my first drafts of any book would absolutely in no way be ready for the shelf anywhere but i try and make them as close to it as possible just because i I need that sense of completeness i think but the the editing is actually my favorite part of it all okay Mm. i sometimes like editing sometimes i don't depends on my mood yeah what i like about it is the uh the collaborative because i'm a very Mm, apparently this is unusual but i don't show anybody my work at all until it goes to i mean my agent sometimes uh you know the last couple of books but um or my editor no one sees it i don't you know hand pages around friends or i don't i don't ask anyone's opinion uh until my editor sees it um so it's quite a a lonely insular experience until it goes to my editor and I think the reason I do it like that is I don't want to be, um, I don't want anyone else's view on it to interfere and make me accidentally take out something that is great and putting something that is not great. Yeah, I yeah. think it's best to just have it, even if I'm, you know, like the vomit draft, even if I'm putting something in there that I'm thinking this is never going to make the final draft, mm. but I can't think how to fix this problem. So I'll put this in there. So it looks like I've tried. <laughs> um, and then it all comes out in the edit, which, yeah, I, I, it's quite scary at first, but, um, you know, getting that initial, they call it a letter, don't they? Um, you get a letter from your editor when they've read the yeah. first draft and it's like four pages and you hope it's good news. And they, <laughs> they always start with the, the first paragraph is always, Oh, congratulations, blah, this is great. And, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. and then 3,000 words of, here's what you've done wrong. <laughs> and then they finish with a, but overall it's great. Yes. Yeah, but usually. shit sandwich. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> but for the, for the fake up, especially uh, everything that Cal, my editor came back with, I knew was wrong already. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I was quite relieved that we were on the same page about it. Um, there wasn't anything that I'd thought, oh no, that's really great. I don't want to change that. And then, and so it was, it was really uh, quite reassuring brilliant i mean that's that's what you hope for that's the editor doing nailing their job really yeah and i think there's nothing wrong with submitting a draft that you don't think is quite right mm-hmm. i think it's better in a way to have quite um you know quite a, a view of it where i know this is a problem 
but I'm going to submit it anyway so that you can help me solve the problem. Yeah. You know, I think if you are submitting something, you think this is perfect. This is, you know, it will just be typos that are getting corrected. Then you're not going to have a great experience. No, because you're going to go in not wanting to change anything. So when changes are suggested, you'll, you'll probably want to push back on those a bit more. Yeah, exactly. And I think you, I think it's important to be open to change mm-hmm. with your editor. You don't have to agree with them all, you know, as I'm learning book by book, but <laughs> there's, you know, an editor isn't just making you, well, they don't make you, isn't just suggesting changes for fun or because yeah. they're bored. It's because they're looking at it with a slightly different eye and eventually it all comes together. It does. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Editors are very clever people. They know what they're doing. They do. Yeah. And before before we get on to the final question, uh, I just have one more um, question to ask you, which is uh, anyone listening who is um, looking to follow a sort of similar, I mean, you've had a very sort of personal and, and uh, exciting career path, but anyone looking to get into being a columnist or um, writing for uh, blogging and things like that, what advice would you give them? Oh, that's a good question. Well... Um, with, uh, does people still start blogs? Hey, <laughs> I, I, I keep reading every like three years or so that blogs are dead, blogging's over, long form, you know, writing is, you know, nobody cares. Hmm. But I don't think that's true. And I hope it's not true. I think if you want to, I think it's about finding a voice and establishing it and finding a niche. And I think, I don't know. You have to ask my readers, wouldn't you? But I think why I was so successful uh, at the blogging thing is that while I wasn't doing anything that people hadn't done before, you know, going on dates and blogging about them and bitching about them, whatever, I was doing it uh, in a slightly different way from, you know, that was why Belle de Jour was so successful um, because what she did just had not been done with, you know, she obviously was a great talent, but with just the way she wrote it and the way she presented the material was just so different and unlike anything that had been seen before. And while I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form that that's what the guy liner was, it, um, there wasn't anybody else doing it like I did it, which was, I suppose a lot of the dating blogs I read, uh, before I started mine, um, were quite bitchy and, um, you know, very much presented themselves as the star and, you know, that the people they were going on dates with were horrible and, you know, the, the villain of the story. And that's just not, I, and p- to be honest, I presented myself more often than not as the villain of the story. <laughs> uh, you know, it was my uh, hangups that were causing all the problems, blah, blah, blah. So I think um, that's, that's why I, it became successful. So find your niche. Yeah. Um, and if you have to do something that everybody else is doing, just do it in a way that is unique to you. Your tone of voice is the most important thing um, because it is uniquely yours. And what you will find is when you develop that voice is that people will want to hear it talking about anything. Yeah. And that's how I got a lot of my freelance gigs as the guy liner because people were just really interested in, oh, I wonder what the guy liner would think of that. Or I've been waiting to hear your take on that. And there's no greater honor than that. But yeah. to do that, you have to remain true to your voice and sometimes not do things that yeah. you probably shouldn't do and hopefully you'll get noticed 
I see it more and more happening online. People are getting noticed, you know, the, the breaks are coming. Mm-hmm. You do have to be quite online, I suppose. And if you're not fond of Twitter or uh, Instagram, then it might take you a bit longer because just that's where, you know, there are, there are people out there waiting to read your writing and, and to become entranced by it or whatever. And all you have to do is put it out there. Yeah. That's what I did. That's great advice, not just for people wanting to follow a similar path as you, but but also just writing in any form. Uh, I yeah, think, go into it not you know, go into it not expecting it to make you rich or famous. Uh, we, of, mm-hmm. I'm neither of those things, by the way. I'm not saying that I'm rich <laughs> or famous, but you know, go into it as an outlet. Uh, with the hope that you will find some either like-minded individuals or people will just enjoy it for what it is. And if the rest happens, then all to the good. But it can happen, and I am seeing it happen. It's happened before me and it's happening since me. And some truly wonderful writers are being discovered through social media and through blogs. But the only way you can do it is by pressing send on that piece of work yourself. Indeed, you have to put yourself out there. You do. It's such an old cliche. It's a really dating cliche as well, isn't it? Actually, <laughs> yeah. God, it always comes back to dating. That's but it's it. true in this instance. It is true because um, no one is going to break into your house and search under your mattress for your diary. Exactly. Yes, indeed. Great advice. And that brings us on to the final question, mm. which as always is, Justin, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would you take? So do I know I'm about to be stranded on this desert island? <laughs> because um, you know am i taking a book with me should i and any travels yes, take a book yes. with me just in case right okay you're that, aware that, of your that, exile that helps me choose you know you have to think about weight in your luggage and that kind of thing <laughs> so <laughs> i think i i thought because I, I listened to the podcast and i've heard what other people have said and some mm-hmm. good answers and all that kind of thing and i really thought about this you know should you take a thick book so that you can while away the hours or mm. a book that reminds you of a better time so i decided I would take with me the secret diary of Adrian Mole, age hey. 13 and three quarters. Now, uh, now, can I have the second book as well? They are kind of one book. I'd, I'd, the growing pains. Someone else took Adrian Mole. So if you take the second one and you add it to the library, then both will be there on the island. <laughs> oh, hang on. Who else is on this island? Well, no one's on it, but I like to imagine that all the books stay there and they accumulate. And oh, well, can I choose another one then if island. someone's chosen that? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Or you take the second one and you slowly build up the the anthology. Oh no, the first one's so much better though. This, what, it, it, it's an excellent um, it staple oh, of anyone. Who chose childhood. that? Um, you've put me on the spot and I've had a lot oh, of Oh, don't guests. worry. I'll, uh, I'll, 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 I'll find out myself. I'll go back and listen. Okay, right. Okay, I will take um, Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca. Oh, okay, yeah. <sighs> this could not it's, it's such a strange it's probably my favorite book or at least one of it's, it's definitely one of my favorite books and i talk about it all the time and mm-hmm. if i'm ever asked what my favorite book is i usually go for rebecca purely because it could not have been possibly further from my own life it's about a load of rich spoiled people who don't have any actual problems but create them for themselves uh, living in the 1920s um but it is an absolute masterpiece and it's probably the first ever book to describe imposter syndrome so perfectly yeah so <laughs> for those who don't know it is it's always called a gothic romance but i, I think it's I, 
honestly don't think it's remotely romantic. <laughs> and it's about a uh, a young woman who remains nameless throughout the book, who meets uh, um, older than her widower, whose wife died in mysterious-ish circumstances a year before, and he is said to be devastated by her death. And he, they get married. Uh, whirlwind romance. Which is that a whirlwind? Oh, good whirlwind. whirlwind. <laughs> so they have a whirlwind romance, and he takes her back to his sprawling, beautiful estate in Cornwall called Mandalay, and she is all of a sudden the lady of the manor, except she's about 23 or something and vastly inexperienced and completely out of her depth and completely haunted by the spectre of this beautiful, uh, socially articulate, uh, popular first wife who is called Rebecca. And it is an incredible book. Um, that would be the one. And I would just kind of read it and imagine that, um, I mean, to be honest, I, my favorite character in it isn't actually in it. It's Rebecca. You know, she sounds amazing. <laughs> I can see why they all miss her. Um, but as usual, there's a, and there's an absolutely fantastic twist, which even though the book is over 80 years old, I would not want to spoil. And yes. um, I've reread it and reread it and never get bored. So I think I would have to take Rebecca with me. Well, it's a great choice. Didn't they, they made a movie recently? Though? <sighs> Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, there have been several adaptations okay. of this seminal work, uh, with the latest being an absolute dull fest starring <laughs> two of the biggest dreary wardrobes in acting oh, army no. hammer who well, less said about him the better <laughs> and lily james neither of whom i'm a particular fan of and oh, they no. just oh, it was really horrible as always everyone read the book don't watch the film please read the book <laughs> i mean watch you know what actually if you you know need to channel some anger or whatever, read the book and enjoy the book and then watch the, uh, <laughs> the army hammer Lily James adaptation and okay. feel the fire. <laughs> I think that's called hate watching. Um. Yeah. Hate watch it, but, but it. please have a, have an ambulance on standby in case it gets too much for your ticker because it is truly egregious what they did to it. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And that, that about rounds it off just where I wanted to end. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Justin, for coming on and, and uh, sharing your experience and your journey with writing and everything that you've been up to. It's been really great chatting with you. Thank you, Jamie. I've had a great time. And for everyone listening, uh, to keep up with, with everything that Justin is doing, follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TheGuyLiner and head over to the website, TheGuyLiner.com to keep up with the blog and the, and the dating uh, things like that. It's, it's great stuff. Also, The Fake Up is out as of airing this episode. Uh, go and get your hands on it. It's going to be hilarious. It's going to be brilliant. You won't regret it. You can also get both of the other books available now in all your usual places. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow us on Twitter twitter at right and wrong uk and on instagram at right and wrong podcast thanks again to justin and thanks to everyone listening we'll catch you in the next episode waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30 percent in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.